Our text tonight is verses 22 through verse 25 in 1 Peter 1. And we're looking at this whole matter of being born again to love. And really in this final part of the chapter, everything else that is there in the passage surrounds this very basic Christian principle that we are to love one another. And as we've been considering over these past Lord's days, this is a command that is repeated throughout the New Testament. And in fact, it's a vital mark of being a true believer. And so it is important not only in showing the love of Christ in terms of of life in the family of believers to benefit and to bless and to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, help one another in the body of Christ, but also our loving one another is so important in our impact on the world around us. And those two things go together. We're to love one another, to love the brethren, to build one another up, and this in itself will have a mighty testimony in the world around us. Remember the Lord Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's so simple. One of the the clear marks that we are disciples of Jesus is that we love one another. So it's a powerful witness to a watching world because this love, as we have seen in recent weeks, is otherworldly. It's a supernatural love. And so when the world looks on and sees that not only do we, we not offend each other, but actually love each other, they see something different. It marks us out. 1 John 3, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And so we find this command once again in our text tonight in 1 Peter 1, very simple and vital to our experience as believers. And we began to unpack the text last time and we saw that Peter uses a word in the original that expresses the very highest kind of love. It's the love of the will. It's not the the love of just emotion or just feeling. It is the love of the will, which means it is a determined act. It is love which responds to this command. And so Peter speaks of this command with an intensity and also with a practicality. And he is calling those who have been brought to know the Lord by sovereign grace to a proper response to that gift. A right response towards the Lord in verses 13 to 18 in seeking to honor him, pursue holiness, to glorify him and worship him and hope in him. And then a right response to others in that we ought to love one another. And so these things, they are there and they are clear and we need to look at them again this evening. And we saw last time that the capacity to love like this is given to the believer when they were born again, when they were given new life in Christ, when salvation was made a reality to us in time. We were enabled to love And we can now respond to that command because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. 
And then in verses 22 to 23, he says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again. So in that moment of purging, obedience, new birth, we're given this capacity to love, so this supernatural love should now become the natural outworking for the believer. And please also notice that Peter underlines that this love is sincere and it is fervent. It's not fake. It's not hypocritical, but it is genuine. It is real. It is earnest. You know, there is much around that is shallow and superficial emotion, but that is not the love of Christ. It is not the love of God. This true love is a fruit of the Spirit of God at work in us. So we ask the question then, who are we to love? Well, verse 22, sincere love of the brethren. So in this instance, Peter is given that command, that focus to love our brothers and sisters, the brethren. Now, we've not only been given the ability to love, but a new family in which we exercise that love, particularly in the local church. The Lord's people, that family of believers to which we belong. 1 John 3, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. One of the great evidences of this love is that it is sacrificial. It actively seeks to meet the needs of others within the household of faith, within the family. And there is a new ground of affection, our union with Christ, which is far beyond all earthly relationships. And when that love is displayed amongst the Lord's people, it affirms that we are his. And it has a compelling power and an attractive power you know, in this day and age, we know that there are many challenges placed upon churches, and all too often, churches fall into the trap of thinking that making church attractive is about evangelistic technique or externals or methods or gimmicks to get people in. But one of the most attractive things is to see the love of Christ displayed in and through the Lord's people. And surely we want those who come into our midst here to see that love demonstrated, to see that love in reality played out amongst us as brothers and sisters in our relationships one with another. And so then we ask the question, well, if we know that we're to love the brethren, how are we to love them? Well, Peter says again, he says, we should love them fervently. It's interesting that he uses that word again later in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Do you know, many people hold grudges, and they become bitter and unforgiving. But true, fervent Christian love is able to cover a multitude of sins, to bear and forbear. And Peter emphasizes, he says, we are to love fervently. And the word itself speaks of stretching to the very limit of our capacity. For example, it is like stretching a muscle out to its maximum limit. 
And Peter says to reach and stretch the very limit of love as far as possible. Now, by the way, Peter had been taught this by the Lord Jesus. Maybe you remember the occasion when he'd asked the Savior, shall I forgive seven times? And how did Jesus reply? He said, forgive 70 times seven. And speaking about the household of faith, believers, the Lord's people, we are to be ready to forgive to the utmost limit. To love like that, this kind of love, that extended fervent love that goes beyond the casual level, which is what most of us experience and little else. You know, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22 says that he prayed fervently. He was extended in the matter of prayer to the point where he sweat drops of blood. In Acts 12 verse 5, when Peter was in prison, it says that the church went to prayer and they prayed fervently. They were literally praying to the limits that their faith could stretch them. So this fervent love, which is a a consequence of the new birth, is loving to the extreme as far as it can reach. Do you know many link in with this passage here in 1 Peter 1, a, a link back to Luke 10 and verse 27. And on that occasion, the Lord says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he's speaking there of stretching our love to love God with all the capacity that we have and then to stretch our love to our neighbor in the same way that we love ourselves. You say, what does that mean? Well, it means to actually look out for your neighbor in the same way as you look out for yourself. And to explain that, the Lord Jesus, to make the point, tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. So a man is robbed and he's beaten and he's left for dead. You probably know the narrative. A priest comes along, the the religious man, the priest, he comes along and he, he passes by. There's no love. There's no interest in helping. And then the next one comes along, a Levite who served the priesthood. He came and he passed by. And not as much as that, he also went out of his way to avoid helping. Went on the other side of the road. And then the Samaritan came, the least likely. And he felt compassion for the man and he cared for his wounds and bound them up and took him to an inn and arranged for his care, all at great cost to himself. Loving to the limit. Loving the unlovely, the unloved. And when Jesus uses that, he then makes the point, he says that those who follow him will have that readiness and awareness to love those in need. Love, not just in thought, but also in deed. And when you bring that back to this passage here in 1 Peter, you apply that in terms of loving the brethren with a fervent love, you can see that it's clear what he's saying. You know, at this point, it's often easier then to step back and to downplay, and to trivialize it, and to try and make it a bit more comfortable for us. But that doesn't convey the strength of what Peter is saying. We need to ask ourselves, friends, who do we know amongst our brethren who is in real need? Who is struggling? It might be spiritual struggles. It might be financial struggles, relationship struggles. Who is lonely? Who is grieving? 
who is finding things hard with raising a family, who is unwell, who is in a home, and no doubt there are so many other things that might be coming into your mind. And we ask then, who is facing these things and what am I doing about it? Not looking to what somebody else might do, but what am I doing? How can I help? Are we praying actively, Lord, please direct me to those brethren that need support and encouragement and help, and Lord, please help me to love in the way that you want me to love, to love fervently. And also it needs to be from the heart. Look at verse 22. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Peter says that this sacrificial, unrelenting love isn't just a cold requirement. It comes from a, a pure heart, a heart that is right with God. As one explains, it's, it's not something that is compelled legalistically. It is something compelled from within. And God, help us to have that kind of compassion. We're so easily distracted, but it's got to be that, that kind of love that the Spirit of God produces from within. And Peter says, believer, you are to love to the limit, to love sacrificially, to love when it costs. To love when it costs time and energy, to love from the heart. And that's so important because he's not saying, well, just grit your teeth and get through it. You know, do that thing that you know that you should do. And even though you're reluctant, just do it out of duty. It's the overflow of the work of God within the fruit of the Spirit. We've been loved greatly. And so we should love others greatly. And you say, well, how do we know and experience the fruit of the Spirit? Well, by walking in the Spirit, moment by moment, submitting to the Word, putting your life under the control of the Lord. And he works in us to produce that genuine love. Just amazing when you look through, and maybe there have been occasions in your own lives and walk with the Lord, when we're brought into circumstances where the Lord has enabled us to love and we've been blessed within that situation, blessed to receive love from others and blessed in giving that love to others. And Peter's saying, look, I'm not asking you to do something that you cannot do because if you're born again, you have the capacity to do it. But that's where the battle is because we also have that battle because we can still sin. We have the capacity not to love. We can sin in not loving, and that's why the New Testament has to constantly exhort believers to love one another to exercise that love. Think of Philippians 1.9. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more. 1 Thessalonians 3 verses 11 to 12. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. 2 Thessalonians 1. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. That's what the Lord wants to see. The commands in Scripture to love more and more show also that we still have that tendency not to love. And so we have to exercise that which the Lord has given to us. But then we ask the question, well, we know who we should love. We know how we should love. But why should we love like this? Well, look at verse 23. Having been born again, 
We should love like this because it's consistent with the new life that we've been given in Christ. That life given, born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. Meaning that the life we have been given is eternal. We must live like this because it is consistent with the life we've been given. 1 John 4 verse 7, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And Peter is saying the same thing as John says there. He says, look, you've been born again. You've tasted the kindness of God. You have new life. And consistent with that is genuine love. You know, when a person is converted, when they become a real Christian, they are brought to new life and they go on to live in the newness of life. Romans 6 do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When you are saved, if that is your state this night, the old life died. And you rose in the resurrection to walk in newness of life. Spiritually, when you're saved, it's as if you're crucified with Christ, you rise with Christ, you walk with Christ in newness of life. You know, believers' baptism symbolizes this. Paul's not talking about that specifically in Romans 6, but that is what believers' baptism shows. This great change. And he goes on in Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. So the old self is crucified. We die with Christ. We rise to newness of life. It is a deep change. In Christ, we are new creations. Old things have passed away. The new has come. Ephesians 4, verse 24, you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, if you're a believer, do you grasp the significance of this? You are a new self created in holiness and righteousness. You're a, a new person, a new creature. The old is dead, the, the new lives. The change is deep. The, the change is real. Regeneration means that new birth. New birth means your old life died. New life in Christ. Your disposition was changed. Your nature was changed. You were taken from lawless and godless and self-seeking to repentance for your sin. And taken from unbelief to trust the Lord and love the Lord and desire to please the Lord. That's the new pattern of life. A new birth liberated you. It set you free from being enslaved to sin to being able to obey the Lord. And that new birth removed your darkened, blinded mind and gave you the ability to think and discern spiritual and eternal realities. It's incredible. It's a wonderful change to be saved. God transforms and he changes and in verse 23, Peter speaks of this new birth. It is a decisive event. You know, with any birth, there is preparation and then there's continuity afterwards, but the birth has to happen. 
A stunning transformation, the sinner made alive, regenerate in that moment by sovereign grace taken from the old, brought into the new. The old creature gone, the new creature lives, the new man delivered from condemnation and called to a life of righteousness. The new birth, it is so key to understanding this, so key to understanding why we are to love one another. And the new birth is what we call a, a monogistic thing. Now you say, well, that's a complicated word, and it is in one regard. But simply it means this. It is the work of God alone. When you're saved, you don't cooperate with the Lord. God intervenes. God saves you. It is his work in entirety. It is a stunning, stunning transformation. A person dead in trespasses and sins Cannot give themselves life. Can't do anything. Only God can give life. And in his purposes, he takes hold of the sinner and brings them from darkness to light, from spiritual blindness to sight, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of his dear son. That's what Peter says. You've been born again. God's work, God's action, God's creation. Irresistible grace. Ephesians 2, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You know, it's the fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 3, where it speaks of an unwilling people being made willing in the day of God's power. God transforms. Salvation is of the Lord. And then Peter explains how God granted this new birth. And he says, it's not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Now, when you were born naturally, you were born of corruptible, perishable seed marked by death. You know, it's what every person faces. We all die. Born of the flesh, born in sin, born in bondage to the enemy, an object of divine wrath. But when you're born again, it's of an incorruptible seed, not of flesh, but spiritual you're set at liberty in the Lord Jesus. No longer an object of divine wrath, but an object of his everlasting love. And so that's why Peter says, love one another. It's consistent with this new life you've been given, the result of God's work. God brings life through that incorruptible seed. Do you know, everything that grows by seed is a creation of God. The fact that God uses seeds does not make it any less his creation, but all seeds in this world die apart from this seed. This seed is full of purpose and will accomplish that purpose. Think of Isaiah 55. As the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. This incorruptible seed, the word of God. And so this new birth, this spiritual regeneration is God's work, the work of the Holy Spirit, but he has a means by which he does it. It is this incorruptible seed, the living, sure, remaining word of God. It is undying as he is undying. The seed that ever lives, the seed that gives life. 
James 1 verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. The seed is the word and the means that the Lord uses. And the Spirit of God works upon that word to bring life. And so that's why the preaching of the gospel is so important, the hearing of the word. It is vital to know life. There has to be that encounter with the truth of God, and that encounter by God's grace transforms. Do you know there's an account of somebody called Little Bilney? He was an early reformer in England. He was born in 1495 very intelligent man by all accounts, and he studied law. He was an upright man. He was a religious man, but there was no life in him. He didn't know the Lord. And somehow, in God's goodness and providence, a copy of a Latin New Testament fell into his hands. And this is what happened. He writes himself. He says, I chanced upon the sentence of St. Paul, almost sweet sentence to my soul, in 1 Timothy 1, it is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief and principal. And he says this one sentence through God's instruction and inward looking which I did not then perceive did so exhilarate my heart having been wounded with the guilt of my sin and being almost in despair that immediately I felt a marvelous comfort and quietness, quietness by looking to Jesus Christ. And after this, the scriptures began to be more pleasant to me than honey or the honeycomb. You know, it's a wonderful thing when God grants a true hearing of his word, where people hear and they believe. Same principle in 1 John 3, 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And what John is saying there is this, the believer's life will be different. It will not be a pattern of unbroken sin because the seed remains. The living and abiding word within. What does he mean by that? He's talking about the saving truth. The gospel, the word. And in our text, Peter is emphasizing we have been saved. The means by which we have been saved is the word which God uses as the seed to affect new life. And we should love as an outworking of that new life. It's a stunning miracle of grace as the spirit of God works in a life to bring that seed to fruition. And just to demonstrate the point as we close... Peter uses a reference from the Old Testament. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, and he says in our text, All flesh is as grass, all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so he's making that point again. New birth from God by an incorruptible seed, the living and abiding word, the gospel. And to prove that the word has this characteristic, he quotes from the Old Testament. And he says, everything that's flesh is just like the grass, it dies. The glory of man is just like the flowers which fall off and die, but the word abides. And this is the word preached. And while God's word is eternal, our flesh is not. You know, you find that repeated throughout the scriptures. 
But the picture is, just think for a moment, all flesh is as grass, the glory of man as the flower of the grass. So imagine you've got a field full of grass. And at times within that field, you've got these beautiful flowers which rise and appear. And for a moment, there is a beauty, certainly in the wild flowers. So you have the common, you've got the grass. And then you've got the uncommon, the beautiful flowers. You've got the plain and you've got the spectacular, the grass and the flower. But the point is this, grass withers and dies. The flower crumbles and dies. Common or uncommon, plain or spectacular, death touches all. The very best of the flesh, the very best of man's life, the very best of his efforts and achievements, the most beautiful of people, healthiest and strongest and honoured and gifted, the flower of man in art and music and education, the greatness of people, but all die. As one explains, the prince and the pauper both come to a grave. Generations come and go like the leaves of each successive year. They die and decay. And for a time, some people might stand out. Some are successful. Some are very rich. Some get great status. But it doesn't last. It's no more abiding. Some may have lives like flowers, delicate and beautiful and striking, and yet it has no permanence, no greater grasp on life. Or do we say ashes to ashes, dust to dust? And Peter says, but you, believer, you've not been born with that type of sin. In Christ, you've got new life, eternal life, and it's glorious and though we may die, yet we shall live because we are in Christ. We have a certain hope beyond the grave, a glorious future. And this is the word that was preached, the gospel, the true and changing word. The importance of the scriptures, the preaching of the word, the precious seed of the word, the means by which new birth is given. 2,000 years later, we are gathered here still to hear and study the word. The word that endures forever to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again, ascended, exalted, one day to return. The one who is able to save to the uttermost all that call on his name. So when did we receive the ability to love like this? At salvation. Who are we to love? One another. How are we to love? Fervently from the heart. Why are we to love? because it is consistent with our new life if we're in Christ. And friends, that is it in a nutshell. That's what we should be about. And we need to battle for it because the enemy would seek to ruin us, but we need to strive in God's grace and by his enabling to love one another. It's the truest expression that we know Jesus Christ, that we have that life within. And you know, my prayer is that as a church, we will be a clear demonstration to the world around us about what love is truly about. But we could only do it as we look to the Savior. We can only do it as we fix our eyes upon him. And I pray that God would teach us and help us to show love to all those in the household of faith that the world may know that we belong to Christ. And that we may enrich the lives of those in his family. Show the character of new life in Christ. And the transforming power of the gospel. That others might look and see. 
that it is his work, and by seeing that, that we would have the privilege of pointing them to the Savior. We need his help to do these things, but he has promised to give us all that we need, and may it be that that is in evidence in our lives, day by day, and all to his glory, until we are called home to be with him. Amen.